All set for your flight? Yep, I've got everything I need. Eye mask, neck pillow, T-Mobile, headphones. Wait, T-Mobile? You bet. Free in-flight Wi-Fi. 15% off all Hilton brands. I never go anywhere without T-Mobile. Same goes from a water bottle, chewing gum, nail clippers, okay, passport. Okay, I'm gonna leave you to it. Find out how you can experience travel better at T-Mobile.com slash travel. Qualifying plan required. Wi-Fi were available on select U.S. airlines. Deposit and Hilton Honors membership required for 15% discount. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 83, The Brat Pack. Today, we return to the historical narrative for our penultimate chapter in the life and times of Amunhotep II, King of Egypt. We explore the king's upbringing at the palace, and how the lessons that he learned there, and the friends that he made, helped to shape his policy during his time on the throne. From the palace of Memphis to the Valley of the Kings, we are exploring a group of very influential people. Today's episode is brought to you by Heli Antilli, Rebecca Whitney, and Alison Thomas. Thank you kindly for your support. May Sakmet grant you her strength. The year was 1424 BCE. Amunhotep II was celebrating his 10th year on the throne of Egypt. He was 28 years old, and after years of campaigning, monument building, and administrative practice, he was now well accustomed to his power and his responsibilities. He was able to govern effectively because he was trained in the art of rule, and because he was surrounded by men experienced in the use of power. In particular, Amunhotep II was surrounded by men with whom he had grown up at the royal court, men he had known since childhood. In ancient Egypt, a pharaoh spent their childhood years in a wide variety of educational pursuits. Reading, writing, mathematics, physical education, and religious theology. They studied hard, and they studied for many years. They learned such skills in the royal palace from specially appointed tutors, esteemed men considered respectably knowledgeable or prestigious enough to train the future rulers. Amunhotep II's tutor was a man named Humai, who spent many years in the palace training the young prince and his brothers and sisters in the many arts that they would require when they came to power. Additionally, the tutor Humai taught and educated a large number of aristocratic children, young men who had been allowed to come to the palace in order to receive their education. These noble children were fortunate indeed. Their time in the palace would set them up for a lifetime of prestige and wealth. I like to call these young men who grew up alongside Amunhotep II the Brat Pack, in honour of the informal group of young up-and-coming actors popular in Hollywood in the early 1980s. But the actual term for these men is children of the nursery. The children of the nursery were known as the Heredu en Cap. They formed a discreet group in society, and long after their school days, these men carried the title of Hered en Cap with pride. Like some kind of Ivy League fraternity, the children of the nursery were the ultimate boys' club, and they profited from this handsomely. Today, we're going to meet this boys' club and see how the influence that they peddled with Amunhotep II helped to reshape some major factors of Egyptian royal society. 
We know of at least nine of these children of the nursery from the reign of Amunhotep II. They were spread throughout Egypt, from the Delta down to Thebes, and they held some incredibly diverse responsibilities. A man named Parser, for instance, became chief of the pharaoh's retainers, and possibly his bodyguard. Parser was the Heri Pejet, or troop commander, and Heri Shemsu en Chemef, or chief of retainers of his majesty. It was a prestigious role that gave him great personal proximity to the king. And Parser seems to have earned it solely because he was a Hered en Kap. Of his titles, we only know of three troop commander, chief of retainers, and child of the nursery. It seems as though Parser was a close member of Amunhotep's social circle, and he was rewarded for this friendship with high office. Another of these children of the nursery was Ma'a Neket F, or One Sees His Strength. He was the overseer of fields of the Lord of the Two Lands, the overseer of cattle, chief steward of all the king's property, overseer of farmers, overseer of the double granary, overseer of leather workers of Amun, and overseer of bread distributors. He was also a child of the nursery, making Ma'a Neket F one of these figures who, by childhood friendship with Amunhotep II, rose to great political and economic prominence. Finally, there was the noteworthy Menhotep, also called Hututu. Menhotep Hututu was overseer of the controllers of Upper Egypt, kind of a master of masters figure. He was the one who counts the revenues of the two lands, sort of the accountant supreme of the kingdom. Finally, he was a royal scribe of recruits, a master of the broad courtyard, and a child of the nursery. These men stand out in particular, but all nine of the known children of the nursery attained great social or political prominence in their own time. It seems as though Amunhotep II was playing favourites, elevating his childhood friends to positions of importance. The reason I single these men out is because their appearance is a symptom of a distinct trend. In the reign of Amunhotep II, Egypt experienced a bit of a shake-up in its political hierarchy. One generation, the elders, were passing into history, and a new one was taking their place. As these up-and-comers emerged, they, and their pharaoh, created some noteworthy upsets in the political life of the kingdom. The change all started with a man named Rek Mi Re. Back in episode 78, we met the vizier of Upper Egypt, Rek Mi Re, aka the one who is knowledgeable like Re. Rek Mi Re lived in the city of Thebes, where he oversaw the government on behalf of the pharaoh. His responsibilities were many, his equals in government were none. If there was a major economic, judicial, political, or administrative matter to take care of, Rek Mi Re was connected to it in some way. Rek Mirei had been vizier since the days of Thutmose III. He gained this position thanks to family connections. His uncle and grandfather had served in the same role as viziers of Upper Egypt. So Rek Mirei represented the third generation of a family now well entrenched in the power structure of ancient Thebes. He was also the last generation. During his long and distinguished career, Rekmi Rey commissioned and completed a magnificent funerary chapel in the hills west of Thebes. This shrine would receive offerings for his soul and nourish him in the afterlife. 
it would also connect with his tomb, which is still undiscovered, and ensure that his spirit remained healthy and powerful in the next world. At least, that was its intended function. Unfortunately, Rekmi Rey never got the chance. Sometime in the reign of Amunhotep II, the tomb chapel of Rekmi Rey was deliberately vandalised. Its painted figures, particularly those of the vizier himself, were chiselled away, and the offerings and prayers ceased forevermore. It seems that someone took a vendetta against the vizier and condemned him to being forgotten. What kind of person could have the power to do this? Why, none other than the pharaoh himself. In a shocking twist of fate, King Amunhotep II removed his vizier of Upper Egypt, Rekmi Rey, from office. Not only that, he also condemned the vizier to obscurity in the afterlife, and destroyed his tomb chapel so that none could make offerings to him. Why did he do this? The reasons are unknown, there is no record of exactly why Amunhotep chose to take this path. But, given Rekmire's family power, the general assumption is that King Amunhotep became uncomfortable with the long-standing influence of this particular family. Rekmi Rey represented the culmination of nearly 50 years of a family gathering influence and power. It is possible that the pharaoh saw this situation and was disturbed by the potential it offered for civil discord. You see, Rekmi Rey was so influential in Thebes that it was conceivable he could become a political liability. Not that he was necessarily a threat to the pharaoh, there was very little chance that Rekmi Rey could directly challenge him, but the economic wealth of his family and their social influence could possibly cause some kind of rift within the government, or at least make it more difficult for Amunhotep to govern effectively in the city of Thebes. Now, this is speculative. As I mentioned, there is no record of exactly why Amunhotep removed the vizier from office. What is clear is that the pharaoh took a sudden and abrupt turn against one of his most important officials. He stripped Rekmi Rey of power, and then chose new figures to represent him down in the city of Thebes. As you can guess, Amunhotep's replacements were not necessarily officials from the city of Thebes or experienced government administrators. Instead, they were his childhood friends. Having stripped Rekmi Rey of power, Amunhotep chose his replacement. This was a man named Amun M. Opet. Amun M. Opet, or Amun in the festival of Opet, was a minor noble who had served as a priest and dignitary before rising to high office. He was pretty low on the social hierarchy, all things considered, and you might be forgiven for asking, why him? Amunhotep II had not chosen his new vizier out of the blue as some kind of surprise confidence vote. He had been influenced, guided even, by one of his advisers. At this crucial moment, it seems the king was being influenced by a man he had known for many years, a man who had once been his royal tutor. Back in the days of youth when he was living in the palace and being educated alongside wealthy children, Amunhotep II had been educated and taught by a man named Humai. Humai, or Amoza Humai to be exact, was the royal tutor and overseer of the nursery as an institution. He was a palace official, a manager and administrator. But, thanks to many years of personal familiarity with the future king, 
he had the attention and the confidence of the pharaoh Amunhotep. Humai was able to guide the pharaoh in his decision-making, and when the time came to find a replacement for Rekmi Rey, the tutor was ready to advise his ruler. Impartially, of course, Humai was working for the betterment of the country. So, if the king would but listen, could Humai recommend a candidate? The pharaoh assented, and Humai brought forth Amun M. Opet, who just so happened to be his son. Humai, the royal tutor, successfully promoted his son Amun M. Opet as the new vizier of Upper Egypt. He did this despite Amun M. Opet having very little political or administrative experience, and no real influence at the court. So it seems as though this promotion was something of a favour to a man who had served the king so well. Amun M. Opet advanced on the tales of his father's service. The pharaoh was playing favourites, Humai was profiting from it. Now, as Rekmi Rey's clan fell, a new family was rising to prominence in the government. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the relative inexperience of Amun M. Opet was not ideal for creating a powerful and lasting legacy. In fact, despite how important his office was, we know very little about him as a man. What we know, I can summarise in about a minute. Let's go. Amun M. Opet came from, we don't know. He was an unknown age when he became vizier. His children were non-existent. His wife is unknown, if any. In office, he accomplished an unknown number of projects, and his responsibilities were limited at best. In fact, compared to Rekmi Rey, Amunem Opet handled just 20% of the same jobs and responsibilities, which was partly intentional, as I'll come back to, but also indicates that the appointment of Amunem Opet as vizier was more about personal favour than competence or experience. So what is remarkable about Amun M. Opet is not his personality or his life, but how that life fits in to a larger historical phenomenon. Were it not for the fact that he followed after the sudden fall of Rekmi Rey, we would probably never even take note of him. But, as we will see, even a relative nobody can represent big moments in history. The life of Amun M. Opet was not inconsequential, He was part of big things that were underway in the life of the palace. Speaking of the palace, although the royal tutor Humai had successfully pulled off a major coup in having his son promoted to the vizierate, he was not yet satisfied with his success. Humai now looked to the next step in his efforts to promote his family. As one job was secured, Humai began to put forth another of his relatives for a government job. Requesting an audience with his king, Humai came before Amunhotep and suggested that perhaps his family could serve the king in other ways. With Rekmi Rey gone, and Amunem Opet somewhat inexperienced, it couldn't hurt to have a few more hands taking care of Thebes, right? If Amunhotep would just hear him out, perhaps Humai could suggest a candidate for the city's mayor. The pharaoh listened, and so Humai brought forth another of his family members for promotion. This was his nephew, a man named Sen-Nefer. He was the second part of Humai's plan for the great city. Sen-Nefer, or beautiful brother, came before Amunhotep as a candidate for the Khatiya en Nutrashit, the mayor of the southern city. This was an ambitious promotion, because like his cousin, Sen-Nefer was a relative newcomer to the political game. 
But unlike his cousin, Sennefer was going to make some big waves in the city which he came to govern. The pharaoh approved Humai's suggestion, and a second member of the Teuto's family became a power player in the city of Thebes. Amun M. Opet managed general affairs as the vizier, Sennefer handled the details. As we'll see, these two men and their strong familial bond created a very rich story in the history of the southern city. First, we must take a short break. When we return, the life and careers of Amunem Opet and Senefer, cousins and rulers of Thebes. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries and the conclusions of historians, Grey History dives into the detail and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history. From a revolution based on hope and liberty to its descent into the infamous Reign of Terror, there's plenty to discuss and plenty of grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Grey History, The French Revolution today. Or simply search for The French Revolution. As cousins and as colleagues, Amun M. Opet and Sen Nefer were close. They made reference to each other in their tombs, and indicated that they worked with a strong familial bond. In fact, they even affectionately referred to each other as Sen, or brother. This caused some confusion for a while, because in ancient Egyptian, the word for brother is the same as the word for cousin. The same goes for the word for father and uncle. So, when Sen Nefer refers to his Sen Amunemopet, it could either mean brother or cousin. Which means that in many older texts, you'll see these two referred to as brothers, with Humai being the father of both. Thankfully, a young scholar named J.J. Shirley resolved the issue, and proved that the two were in fact cousins, and the confusion probably arose from the fact that Sen Nefer and Amun Opet were so close in terms of their familiarity and their bond, that these cousins had a relationship almost indistinguishable from that of brothers. It's the sort of linguistic conundrum that can give birth to decades of scholarly debate. Thankfully, it's been resolved, and we now know that Sen Nefer and Amunem Opet were cousins, but they were the very best of friends. Sen Nefer and Amunem Opet ascended to the pinnacle of Theban society. The mayor and the vizier were the new representatives of the pharaoh in the holy city. Between them, they divided up the control of this most important community. From the titles that they left behind, it seems like Amunem Opet was handling things on the big picture level. Sen Nefer, meanwhile, handled the practicalities. 
A munemopet held titles like Imira Iat Gentet, or Overseer of Foremost Officers, and Heri Seshta in Imiweret, or Master of Secrets of the West. These are broad, general titles, indicating that he managed individuals, but didn't really get down to the nitty-gritty. Senefer, meanwhile, had offices like Imira Achut en Genut, or Overseer of the Farms of the Royal Granary. He was also the Cherep Neferet Net Imen em Jesser Jesseru, the controller of high-quality cattle of Amun in the mortuary temple of Hatshepsut at Deir al-Bahari. He also served as an Imira Per en Imen, or steward of the House of Amun. Basically, Sennefer was managing economic details. He was a practical man, focused on the small decisions which help build a working economy. So it seems that where Rekmi Ray had held a whole swathe of different responsibilities on the top and the detailed level, Amunemopet and Sennefer divided these spheres between themselves. And that, dear listener, was precisely the point. The division of responsibilities between these two cousins, where once they had been in the hands of just one official, was a deliberate policy on the part of the king. Having removed Rekmi Ray from office, perhaps because his power was too great, Amunhotep II didn't want to make the mistake of simply appointing a replacement. After all, wouldn't that person simply start to monopolize things? Part of reasserting his control over Thebes was Amunhotep's decision to divide the responsibilities and offices of the city between more than one person. It seems as though around 1425 BCE, the pharaoh was concerned about the organization of his government. Faced with the task of managing a powerful and influential aristocracy, Amunhotep opted to reduce the power of certain families, and to then divide that power among others. Sennefer and Amunem Obet benefited from this policy. Although they were still family members and could be relied upon to work together well, the fact that neither one of them had the kind of status or power of their predecessor meant that the pharaoh could rest more easy, assured of his own influence in the city of Thebes. I very much doubt that either of the two cousins were particularly worried about the fact that they did not have quite the same power as Rekmi Rey. After all, before their rapid ascent, they had merely been children of the nursery, prominent in status, but not necessarily in political power. Now, they were on a whole nother level of what they might have expected growing up. And surprisingly, even this massive ascent to power was not the last of the glories they received. As I mentioned earlier, Amunemopet was not one of Egypt's most accomplished viziers. We know very little of his deeds, and almost nothing about him personally. So apparently, he was a minor figure at best in the history of the government. But, that kind of obscurity didn't stop him from being granted an incredibly rare privilege. Amunemopet was, by personal decree of the king, granted his own tomb in the Valley of the Kings. Around 1420 BCE, there were just eight or nine tombs in the Valley of the Kings. In the 90 or so years since Tutmose I was buried there, monuments had been constructed for four kings, plus Hatshepsut, and two or three queens. 
there were also constructions for just two non-royal officials. So the emphasis was clearly on royalty. Being granted a tomb here was an incredibly rare and prestigious honour. Well, for some reason, Amunhotep II decided to grant his lacklustre vizier that same honour. The tomb of Amunemopet is, like its owner, unremarkable. It is undecorated and basically just a shaft, a doorway and a burial chamber. Hardly the stuff of great dreams. But as they say in real estate, it's all about the location. Amunemopet got a tomb in the prime spot, a burial in the sacred valley near to his master and to the great rulers of the recent past. Even if it was a small tomb, it was as well positioned as you can hope for. The lesser known vizier became one of the lucky few to rest in the Valley of the Kings. You might expect that Amunemopet's cousin, Sen-Nefer, was envious of this prestige. But when you look at his tomb, those suspicions will probably evaporate. Of the two, it was Sen-Nefer who had the more impressive burial. Heck, Sen-Nefer has one of the coolest tombs from the entire 18th dynasty. East of the Valley of the Kings, in the hills called Sheikh Abd el-Kurna, stands a tomb numbered TT96. This is its boring name. Its more interesting name is the Tomb of the Vineyard. Once he became mayor of Thebes, Sen-Nefer commissioned his mortuary edifice. It seems that he spared no expense. TT96, the Tomb of the Vineyard, is gorgeously decorated. It is rich in colour and variety, with scenes of Sen-Nefer and his family at leisure in the afterlife. There are images of Sen-Nefer, his wife Senet-Nai, and their two daughters. There are also images of Senet-Nai's other daughters, perhaps from a previous marriage. The whole tomb is filled with scenes of the family enjoying their comfortable lifestyle. We even see a depiction of their house and garden, and the various kinds of work that occurred on their estates. Finally, we see Senefer and his wife before the great gods, making offerings to Osiris, as was proper. It is a richly decorated tomb. The images are well worth your time. Now what really sets the monument of Senefer apart is the decoration on its ceiling. Here, the artists created a fabulous image. You see, the ceiling of Senefer's tomb is decorated entirely with images of grapevines. Heavy with leaves and drooping under the weight of bunches of grapes, the ceiling takes the form of an eternal vineyard. As you walk into it, you are transported to an afterlife of abundance and plenty, of autumn sunlight dappled through the leaves of rich, sweet-smelling vines. If there is a paradise, this is the one that I want to go to. In life, Senefer was responsible for agricultural estates of the king. So it's not surprising that these appear a lot in the tomb. In one particularly great scene, a large grain farm is being worked by men and by oxen. One of the ploughmen turns to his ox and says, Walk on, walk on, move! Look, the mayor of the city wants this done. To this, the ploughman's colleague says, You speak to the oxen too harshly. Unharness them, let them have a drink. The first ploughman, apparently chastened, now turns to the animals and frees them from their yoke. As he does so, he says, Cheer up, oxen. Look, we are unharnessing you so that you can spend the day working the damper land in the presence of the mayor. I love little scenes like this, with their captions that seem to be taken right out of life and given immortality in the form of painting. 
Scenes like this, in my opinion, add incredible vitality to what can sometimes be sombre or formulaic tomb scenes. As beautiful as the monument of Sennefer is, these scenes in particular are what set his monument apart as a kind of lively and beautiful record of his life in the Nile Valley. Combine that with the vineyard that is all above you as you go in, and really, you're looking at one of the most beautiful tombs of the time. Anyway, getting back to the cousins themselves. Amunemopet and Sennefer would continue to serve for the remainder of Amunhotep II's reign. They, like so many others, benefited from an era of peace in the Nile Valley, and their careers were undisturbed. They could go about their business, business like managing estates or institutions, quietly and work for the enrichment of their pharaoh. They seem to have made a good team, because Sen-Nefer represented his cousin a lot in his tomb. In one scene, the two sit together with a caption that says, quote, Sen-Nefer is sitting in a hall of amusement, and spending a perfect day with his cousin, whom he loves, the one unique and serviceably minded to the good god, the overseer of the city and vizier, Amun M. Opet. He is the sole beloved friend, the confidant of the lord of the two lands. End quote. Truly, this was a strong bond, and I think we should appreciate the fact that Amunemopet and Sennefer, who worked so well together in life, also tried to ensure that they could continue to enjoy their friendship in eternity. Returning to the big picture. The vizier Rekmi Ray and his family was down. Amunemopet and Sennefer were up. Throughout the land, officials bearing the title of Child of the Nursery were being placed in positions of power. The tutor of the king, Humai, was enjoying a moment of unprecedented influence. In short, the government was experiencing some sea changes in its power structure. Why was this happening? We can see the rapid ascent of Sennefer and Amunemopet as a symptom of something much larger. If you put the fall of Rekmire, the rise of the two cousins, and the appearance of the children of the nursery together, you get a very short span of time where the government of the kingdom was reshaped in some curious ways. Prominent, long-standing families and officials were gone, replacing them, a host of inexperienced newcomers changed the face of royal administration. As this process began, it seems like the pharaoh was pulling some very deliberate moves. The current consensus among Egyptologists, by which I mean three or four scholars who look at this material, is that the reign of Amunhotep II marks a shift in the royal approach to political management. It was a small shift, but it had large consequences. The essence of this shift is simple. Amunhotep grew up in a closed, elite environment. When he came to power, he had more trust for the men that he knew personally than for those who, although perfectly capable, came from far away and were strangers to the throne. We shouldn't blame Amunhotep for this tendency. It's certainly a pretty minor mistake to make. And he didn't even make the mistake that badly. None of the children of the nursery reached the highest offices, and the government clearly did not collapse on account of a bit of cronyism. But there were long-term consequences to this policy, and some of them had a significant impact over the course of generations. Amunhotep II came to power a young, palace-educated man. His court slowly filled up with men who were similar. These men displaced older families, and they stamped their own influence on the government of the kingdom. 
As they did so, they caused a shift in the balance of power, which we are going to see play out over the next few generations and episodes. So, Amunhotep II has a reputation for cronyism. Is it earned? I think so. The king seems to have chosen many of his officials on the basis of familiarity rather than experience. More importantly, he did this more than any king we know of before him. Now, maybe he was just following human nature and sticking with those he knew. But compared to his father, who had a clear meritocratic streak, Amunhotep II definitely seems like the sort of guy who played favourites. I'm not criticising the king too harshly here. We all have our close friends that we trust more than strangers. But when you're in a position of power, these things can have significant knock-on effects. And that is exactly what happened with Amunhotep's choices. After decades of light-handed government, while pharaohs waged wars in foreign lands and erected monuments to the gods, Amunhotep's reign changed the direction of history somewhat. Now, Egypt's government was centralising once again. The king and his close friends were becoming more dominant, more controlling. And that, dear listener, is why I highlight Amunhotep's cronyism in particular. It marks a trend, a trend that would alter the entire course of the 18th dynasty. As we roll towards the conclusion of Amunhotep's reign, we should keep this trend in our heads. The king's actions were changing the political landscape of the country, and these would have long-term effects. Observant officials could see the path to advancement was now a matter of gaining the king's friendship and trust. As the 18th dynasty continued, this trend was only going to get stronger. On the next episode of the History of Egypt podcast, we make our way through the last days of Amunhotep II. We meet his family, in particular the surprisingly large number of sons born to the king's wives. With several sons of a similar age coming to maturity at once, how was Amunhotep going to choose his heir? And, if he chose one above the others, what would those left out do about it? All this and the king's magnificent tomb on the next episode. See you soon! The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. When a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. I'm Tracy. And I'm Rich. And we want to invite you to join us as we take an in-depth look at this pivotal era in American history. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts.